going deep. I feel like Kalo on the Miami Heat. The words I speak off this sheet are like a three-peat. I don't just hop on a track. I bring running cleats. I'm a player for real, more than an athlete. Let my mama tell it. Could have ran for the Senate. Instead, I penned it for Donovan Bennett. I'm cemented. This a deep dive. In your headphones or a long drive. Up close and personal, just like you courtside. They ain't no out of bounds here. No offsides. We going live in one, two, three, four, five. You are now tuned in to Going Deep with Donovan Bennett. Thank you, Capital, and thank you for listening. I'm Donovan Bennett, and if you have been listening for the last couple episodes, you know we've been talking almost exclusively about DeMar Hamlin and his condition. That won't be the case today. We will talk about some college football and turn the page somewhat, but we did pledge that we would update you on his condition as we get positive news, and thankfully we have some positive news. He's still in critical condition, so he still has a long road to go But he continues to heal. His neurological condition and function is intact, which essentially means he's able to move his extremities with purpose. He's able to follow basic commands. And we do have to shout out people who have been giving him care, both on the field at the time and who have stayed with him in the hospital since and once he got to the hospital. And so we shouted out some members of the the Bill staff yesterday on the show goes without saying we should also hail up Denny Kellington, who's the assistant athletic trainer for the Bills. He is the person who administered CPR on the field and thus is allowing us to have a somewhat positive conversation about him. The conversation was filled with more information, both informative and anecdotal, as there was a press conference at the University of Cincinnati Medical Center to update the media on his condition. This is the soundbite by Dr. Timothy Pritz that I found most interesting. We were in the situation where we wanted to allow him to gradually, you know, wake up as the rest of his uh, body was healing. Uh, And uh, last night he was able to um, emerge and uh, follow commands uh, and even ask uh, who had won the game. I can clarify, he did not speak. Um, he was able to communicate uh, in writing. Um, and he is uh, unable to speak with us yet as he uh, still has a breathing tube in and we are still assisting him with uh, ventilation. And, uh, you know, to paraphrase uh, one of our partners, you know, when, when he asked, did we win? The answer is yes, you know, Damar, you won. You've won the game of life. And that clip was from Thursday evening. To update the story further, Shams, of all people, updated us on Twitter that the breathing tube is completely out. He's able to talk and has been talking to teammates. And that was the next milestone in terms of his recovery, being able to totally breathe on his own. So clearly the lungs are in much better condition, as we mentioned. And when someone has stopped breathing for a while, the next real concern it's the brain. We talked about that in the medical care of DeMar Hamlin on yesterday's episode. If you didn't get a chance to listen, go back uh, and take a listen uh, because these are all small incremental steps, but good steps that he's moving in the right direction. So clearly the power of prayer is working and we can start to talk about sports, what, what we love to talk about sports, but keeping him and his family in our mind in terms of football the biggest game next week is at the college level the national championship and it has been an outstanding ball season and georgia opens as 13 point favorites and they're now 12 and a half favorites depending on where you're looking which makes sense for someone who's a preseason number three facing a team in tcu who wasn't ranked in the top 25 to start the season but don't sleep on the Horn Frogs. They obviously upset Michigan in the Fiesta Bowl, but in the BCS playoff era, historically the large spreads have led to not only close games, they've led to upsets. Remember that great Miami team, they were 12-point favorites. They lost to Ohio State. And Florida State, an 11-and-a-half favorite, losing to Oklahoma. So Georgia could be the first team to go back-to-back in the playoff era, but I don't think it'll be easy. What will have to happen for that to be the case? And as you'll hear in this episode, both sides of the ball 
this game is filled with people who, at some point, the larger called football structure looked at them and said, yeah, I'm not really that into you. Haley McGoldrick, someone who I'm totally into her writing and her tweets because they're hilarious. She's going to join us. You've seen her work, certainly, on Sportsnet covering college football and the WNBA. Also, is content creating not just for us here at Rogers Sports and Media with Sportsnet, but also with City News. We'll talk about the college landscape and what this game means, and then we'll go even further in depth with Adam Rinberg about these two programs and what it means that they're facing each other in this time, a time of change in college football. But first, let's change the football conversation that we've had over the last couple days and go deep on the national championship next week. Let's listen to and learn from Haley McGoldrick. I don't think I'm the only one who strongly feels that TCU Georgia was not the championship game I thought I was going to get in August, but I'm not mad at it. I'm down for dogs versus frogs to put it in maybe better context for me because the only thing I really care about is who is going to win my college football pool uh, is Haley, who does great content for Sportsnet, for us at City. Uh, You've seen her work on all things college football and WNBA, but I want to talk about the college football playoff because I'm not certain we have the two best teams, but I am certain that we, whoever wins, we have good storylines. Is that fair to say? Georgia could be back-to-back champs, and maybe we could say they're the new Bama. And then TCU, who has been our football version of Gonzaga or Butler for so long, finally could get some respect and some legitimacy. What intrigues you, Haley, about this matchup? Like you said, there are a lot of great storylines about this. The Big 12, this is their first time where they're really being seen as a contender in the playoff. Those Oklahoma teams, those were some great Oklahoma teams. We had that Georgia-Oklahoma two-overtime game where Baker Mayfield truly left everything on that field, and they just Mm -hmm. couldn't get it done. And this is the first time that a Big 12 team has finally made it over the hump into that championship. Sonny Dykes went 12-0 in his first season as a head coach. Like, that alone is an amazing story. First team to do that since Texas in 2009. You know, lost in overtime to a really good Kansas State team, and then, you know, pulled it out against Michigan— And so that alone is a really great story. And Georgia, as you said as well, I think back when Kirby Smart had his first top recruiting class over Alabama, that was kind of when the tides were turning and it was like, okay, Nick Saban's maybe not going to run this conference anymore. And since then, we've seen Georgia's dominance. So I think Kirby Smart's an amazing head coach and I think he has what it takes to go back to back. I mean, you saw it in that game against Ohio State. That timeout he called when Ohio State tried to pull the fake punt, that's brilliance from a head coach. And I think he's amazing. So I think, like you said, I wasn't expecting this. I probably was expecting Georgia to be in this game. TCU, definitely. I would have never put that down that they were going to be in the national championship. But either way, you've got two amazing storylines of a team who kind of has come in, a coach who came in at the height of Nick Saban's dominance and has turned this Georgia program into a legitimate contender where now the SEC doesn't run through Tuscaloosa. And then this TCU team that's showing that the Big 12 is a competitor. And this is on a year where both Texas and Oklahoma were kind of having down years. I mean, Texas hasn't really been good since the Vince Young years. But, you know, Oklahoma, for sure, they've completely flipped as a program. They used to run the Big 12. And TCU came in here and went undefeated, made it to the playoff, and now they're coming to the national championship. So much good stuff there. Maybe we'll start with Georgia because it's the last thing you talked about, and I'll forget. Uh, <laughs> but, but you're right. It, in terms of the Texas conversation— how many times have we heard Texas is back? Oh, my God, every single year. I will never forget. Sam Ellinger is going to win the Heisman. He's going to win the Heisman. Now, oh, you know, Arch Manning now is the next savior of Texas. And it's just, to be fair, I would never want the coaching job in Texas. That's easily top five hardest coaching jobs in NCAA football. Just With because of, all those resources? But, but that's why it's so hard, right? Like, you have so many boosters. You have so many resources. And when you're, you're not winning, last year they weren't even bowl eligible. Like, I feel bad for Steve Sarkeesian sometimes because it's like that's such a hard job to have. But I don't I don't really know. They have a really good, like, you know, receiving core with Xavier Worthy. They've got Bijan Robinson, one of the best running backs in the country, but they just can't pull it together. So 
I've already derailed our conversation <laughs> with, with Texas. I, I find them fascinating. Charlie Strong goes in there, great pedigree, great program, and you know people are having divisive debates on whether or not they should have smoothies in their training <laughs> facility. Uh, you know, Texas got their own network. You know, they're in many ways their own uh, conversation when it comes to the sport, but the recruiting ground is fertile. So is the case for Georgia, who we've seen Nick Saban disciples go elsewhere trying to create a mini version of Bama, but it's not Bama. No, never. But when you look at what Kirby has been able to do in Georgia, similar resources, and I would argue a better recruiting base in terms of talent in the state, and Kirby maybe is like the closest thing we have to Saban, but he's got like 0.5% more care bear factor. <laughs> like when he goes to recruit uh, you know, a player, he'll give mom a hug instead of a firm sh- handshake like Coach Saban. And Coach Saban is leaving scolding you that like you nothing is promised. Um, if you are... In Tuscaloosa, are you worried at what Georgia is building or has built? Like, are, are, are they now looking at each other as peers? I think so. I think so. And the thing is, too, it's like I feel like Alabama for a really long time had a bunch of, like, you know, really good freshman talent, and they were growing them, even in the case of Bryce Young, right? They have a lot of good, really young talent, and then they grew them so they had them for three, sometimes four years. But now it's not really the case. They don't kind of have that talent that's kind of coming on the scene as a freshman, shocking everybody. And whereas Georgia, Georgia is a different case because when you looked at Stetson Bennett, nobody was saying Stetson Bennett is going to lead this team to a national title, especially last year after they lost to Alabama in the SEC title game. Although I said Kirby Smart's never going to lose that game twice, and I was right. But I think that the way that he recruits is he sees guys and he sees the potential in them, not just they have to have the flash factor as a freshman. They have to come onto the scene and be able to start. And especially, I think, in the current college football scene that we have where a lot of guys, if they don't start as a freshman, they're hitting the transfer portal. They're trying to find something new. I think he really cultivates a culture where you do want to play there for three, four, sometimes five years. You look at a lot of the guys on the roster, and some of them are, you know, fifth-year seniors because they want to keep playing for that program and developing, and they're not those guys who are going to come out here and you know, be those freshman all-stars. And I think now because of the way that he builds his program like that, they definitely are peers with Alabama. You look at Alabama now and it's like, well, why would I want to go to Alabama if I could go to Georgia and maybe feel like that's a little more homey and that's where I fit in a little bit more and I can grow as a player and a person there. Stetson Bennett, for listeners, not my brother. Uh, (laughs) It couldn't be more different than me other than we're basically the same size. But you talk about people staying there for five your boy Stetson staying there for six. Like, because of the, the COVID rule that you get an extra year, he's fully taking advantage of it. I know Georgia is, quote-unquote, the favorite, but their best player is still, quote-unquote, an underdog. Walk-on, junior college, comes back. They essentially tell him, go somewhere else. <laughs> yeah. And he's like, no. He was a stage five clinger, essentially, of the program. Is there long enough because of injury and opportunity, gets this starting role, and it goes from someone who spring camp and training camp they didn't want to leading them to a national championship. Then everyone thinks he's going to ride into the sunset. He decides he's coming back for another year and uh, ends up being someone who's in the Heisman conversation who's never going to win it. No, never. <laughs> but nice to get the invite, finish fourth. But he's got big man on campus energy from a walk-on to now he's walking around with NIL deals and commercials and he's getting his haircut by the black barbers now. <laughs> like, he's he is a character in himself. Hey, here you go. This place is nice. Excuse me, why is Stetson Bennett actually delivering our mail? That's who you are. I deliver. That's what I do. I'm still not sure how good he is, but ultimately they, they win. And offensively, you know, the, they produced, they scored on the first seven drives to start the year. I'm not sure we've seen a story like his 
in major college football in a living because it's kind of like a movie script to be it honest. Is. It is. And if you saw the movie, you're like, this is kind of corny. Oh yeah, and the thing is too, it's funny you say that because I was thinking that to myself because I was thinking of one of my favorite sophomore quarterbacks in the NFL right now, Justin Fields. And I was thinking, what if Justin Fields never left Georgia? What mm. would that look like for so many people? What would it have looked like for Justin Fields? What would it have looked like for Stetson Bennett? Because he basically got that opportunity because Justin said, I don't want to be behind Jake from I'm going, I'm leaving. So he went to Ohio State. Obviously, we know how that played out. But what kind of would have happened there if Stetson still, you know, he's in, what, his third year at this point, and now he's still the third-string quarterback? Like, what am I doing here? So it truly is kind of how the dominoes fall. And that's, like we said before about the transfer portal, that's somebody who's waited his turn, and it's come to fruition for him that he was patient, he waited, he showed, I have what it takes. And again, he's had a lot of great talent around him. We saw how many people from Georgia have gone to the NFL and done great things around him. But I still think that that shows that he's a team player. And I think that's what a lot of people lose, especially in college these days, when they want to be, you know, that starter, that first guy. And I get it because there's such a small pool that will go to the NFL. You want to be able to get as much time on the field as you can. But for Stetson, just kind of waiting his turn and going and showing in that I have the talent. I'm not a backup guy. I will lead you to a national title, but I'm going to wait my turn because this program. And again, that comes to what Kirby Smart has fostered at Georgia, that somebody's going to wait four or five years for their turn versus just flipping and going to a different school. I think that says a lot about the program and also who Stetson is as a person. Let's talk about the other quarterback, uh, also a Heisman finalist. Max Duggan will be uh, a player in the NFL. But, again, someone who not long ago, even though he was a multi-year starter, the staff at TCU said, we're going to make you a backup until he gets his job back. Now he leads them to the national championship. I constantly stop myself and say, no, this is not just a millennial Andy Dalton. Like, this guy <laughs> has high-level talent um, and is, you know, a, a great uh, athlete and leader. What intrigues you about Duggan leading TCU to this place? I think that he could be a much better dual threat quarterback, and he's already a good one. I think if he used his legs a little bit more, he could do really, really great things. And I know that the Big 12 loves their air raid. May Mike Leach rest in peace. He revolutionized the way that the Big 12 plays their football with that air raid offense. I think about last year's uh, Red River Showdown, that Texas-Oklahoma game that was just literally a touchdown every single drive because that's how the Big 12 plays their game. And I think that Michigan going into that game knew that if they wanted to do anything, they needed to shut Max Duggan down through the air, especially they have like four different amazing receivers on TCU. And he used a little bit of that ground game, and he found the end zone, and that's what worked for them. So I think that if he does that a little bit more on top, he's great through the air. I'd Perfect, no notes. Uh, so I think that, I shouldn't say perfect, he did throw two picks, but his weren't pick sixes like J.J. McCarthy's. So um, I think that if he utilizes his ground game a little bit more, there's really no stopping that TCU game. They have a great secondary on defense, They and that's what Georgia kind of relies on through the air. So I think if Max Duggan uses his you know ability on the ground a little bit more, that he's the guy that they really have to watch out for. In a way, this game is basically about people or teams that other people didn't want. Because you talked about what this means for the Big 12. It's funny, I look at it and I think, the Big 12 didn't even want TCU originally. (laughs) I know, I know. TCU goes from the Southwest Conference, then all of a sudden they're on the outside looking in with SMU and Rice and Houston, all no longer really a factor (laughs) in major football. They go to the Southwest Conference, the Western Athletic Conference, which is not a big football conference anymore, Conference USA, Mountain West, and now they're back in the Big 12 almost as if this orphan has <laughs> raised the level uh, and respect of the, the conference. To me, when I realized they were really real, because for the uninitiated, they, they started outside the top 25, and now they're top two. Yeah. When they beat Oklahoma... Week four. Now, we've learned that Oklahoma is not Oklahoma yes. uh, with the, a new coaching staff. But when they beat the traditional power in the conference, it's like, okay, maybe we should put a little bit more respect on their name. What does it mean for TCU? Historically, 
close but never really respected to get uh, to the playoff before actually, you know, the playoff expands a bit where a TCU would have found itself in it in previous incarnations. I think it's huge. And I think, number one, just for their confidence, even, yeah, it's not the same Oklahoma that you saw under Lincoln Riley, but even just for that confidence, you're beating Oklahoma that, you know, Big 12 used to run through Oklahoma. They had, what, there was a time where it was four, five consecutive Big 12 titles? Like, that's insane. You don't even see that in a conference like the SEC. Like, I think that it's huge for their confidence and also goes to show that nobody's ever guaranteed and you could say that for any conference, of course, but I think the Big 12 truly was a conference that was, you know, it was going to be Oklahoma, maybe Texas if they could get it together. Baylor had, like, a few good years. But now it's kind of like it's anybody's conference. And it's kind of funny now that Oklahoma and Texas are going to leave for the SEC when it's, like, it's not your conference anymore. Uh, but I think it's huge for their confidence and also goes to show that, again, just because a team is in a conference with a powerhouse doesn't mean that they're not going to be able to recruit amazing players or really good guys. There are guys who want to go in that conference, and their goal is, I want to beat Oklahoma. I want to beat Texas. They don't want to go to those programs. And again, it depends on the dynamic because there are some guys who will go on and start as a freshman in some of those programs. Some of them weren't. But you might want to go, especially with, you know, Sonny Dykes as a first-year head coach. This is Everything's new now. It's not the same. Maybe you didn't like the plays that your last— head coach was calling, sure, this is a fresh start for everybody. And I think that's intriguing to a lot of people. You see a lot of these coaches go, the coaching carousel in college football is inevitable. People just go around, you know, in circles. There was a lot of people who saw that and thought, this is an opportunity that I want to take. I want to win with this team. TCU wants to be a winning program. And Sunny Dake showed that that's what we're going to do. I don't care that Oklahoma's in this conference. I don't care that Texas is in this conference. We are going to be a winning team. And that's what he did. Let's talk about Sunny Dykes. Another person in this game who people didn't want because the TCU faithful was not sold on him. Granted, beggars can't be choosers. They were five and seven a year ago. But for TCU, everything is, you know, WWGP. What would Gary Patterson do? Right? <laughs> yeah. Like, and, and so now Dykes has done it his own way and clearly it's worked. But there's been a transformation over the last couple of months on how they view him. Yeah, for sure. Like you said, they were so stuck in their ways. And I feel like that's a lot of how the South sees football. Like, I don't know how Alabama's going to function when Nick Saban moves on. Like, that's how they see football. That's how they want to do their things. But again, when you don't have a winning program, how long are you going to put up with that for? Right. And sometimes, yeah, sometimes you need to see the process. You look at Willie Fritz at Tulane. They were two and 10 last year. Now they went 10 and two, won the AAC championship, won the Cotton Bowl against USC. Sometimes you need to see it through. Other times you need that fresh start. And I think a lot of people, they're just scared of that change, especially when college football is such a huge part of people's lives, especially down in the South. It's literally a religion for them. So being able for Sunny Dykes to come in and say, trust my process, I'm going to make it work. I'm going to take these guys and we're going to win. I'm going to take a guy who was a backup quarterback at one point and he's going to start and we're going to do things. You just have to trust me. I think it goes to show that change is a good thing in college football. You don't need to have the same five coaches to be able to win. You don't need to have the same processes and run the same offenses every single year when there's no change. So I kind of like what he did and said, I'm going to be different. I'm not going to run things the same way that everyone before me has. I want to get your thoughts on some big picture college football things before we go. But I'd be remiss if I didn't allow you to have a bit of a wake, a funeral for your (laughs) beloved Ohio State Buckeyes. Because... One, anyone who follows you on Twitter knows that uh, you're Canada's biggest Buckeye stan. <laughs> but two, in in all seriousness, I'm not convinced that the best team in college football is not Ohio State. In terms of talent, I'm not convinced that C.J. Stroud and Marvin Harrison Jr. aren't one, two, the best players in college football. But I also can say that for the better part of 10 years, if we just looked at talent that's playing in the NFL, Ohio State is equal to Bama, but the championships are not equal to Bama. Like, defensive ends just come off of a conveyor belt, uh, you know, in Columbus. Is it just this is high-level football and a kicker misses a kick and that's how things go, or is there something deeper that 
Ryan Day, God love him, hasn't been able to get this program in a place where they win two highly contested football games in a row when throughout the regular season you only play two highly contested football games, period. Of course. It's funny you say first with the defensive end thing because I always said Larry Johnson's recruiting pitch is just Joey Bosa, Nick Bosa, Chase Young. What more do you need to know? But it's true. I think it's a combination of a few things because Ohio State is definitely one of those programs where they just reload. There's never really a down year at Ohio State. You look at the last 10 years, when have they finished outside the top five? Pretty much never. I think there was maybe one year they finished sixth in the AP pool. Like They're a top 10 program consistently. And they have all that NFL talent. You even think, you look at somebody like Jamison Williams, who uh, left Alabama last year, he transferred from Ohio State because he was their fourth receiver. He wasn't getting playing time at Ohio State because that's how their program is. I think a big thing is their defense. Like you said, they do make defensive ends. They also have had some really good secondary players, Marshawn Lattimore, Denzel Ward, even Jeff Okuda. His NFL career may not have been what he wanted it to be, but his final year at Ohio State, he was incredible. And it's just not clicking right now. And they obviously got rid of Kerry Coombs and they brought in Jim Knowles for $2 million, which is a lot for a defensive coordinator in college football. And I think that's just what's not clicking because there's never been an issue with their offense. It kind of drove me nuts that people kept questioning, is C.J. Stroud ready for the NFL? Is he going to be a top three quarterback? Because if you look at any game, there's rarely a time where a loss is going to be his fault. Even the Michigan game last year when, you know, it was the first time Ohio State had lost to Michigan in eight years. It wasn't really C.J. Stroud not throwing the ball or making bad decisions. He was throwing to Chris Olave in the end zone, and Chris Olave's dropping passes in the end zone. I think that the defense needs to click a little bit more, and not to say there's not great defensive players, because there are. You look at Tommy Eichenberg, he's the leader of that defense. Steel Chambers, he's the one who picked off Stetson Bennett in that game to kind of get the ball rolling in the second half. But then also you have something, somebody like... Lathan Ransom, who was really, really good in that game, but also he kind of slips, and then Georgia goes and gets a 76-yard touchdown, and it's just you can't be having those little mistakes. But offensively, they easily are one of the best offenses of the country, and losing Marvin Harrison Jr. absolutely was the turning point in that game. I would be shocked if he's not the first wide receiver to go next year in the NFL draft. He is incredibly talented. It's funny when your dad is part of one of the best quarterback-receiver duos in the NFL history, and you're like... I'm making my own name for myself. And even to say when he was gone, um, Emike Egbuka, he's another amazing receiver too. He didn't even get playing time last year because he was behind Chris Olave, Garrett Wilson, Jackson Smith, and Jigba. He was like a kick return guy. And now he's out here making plays when Marvin Harrison Jr. can't. So absolutely, there's never any question with the offense. I should say there is a question with the run game. And I think that's where Ohio State lost that game because Ryan Day was still trying to push the run game when it wasn't working. And now, obviously, Travion Henderson had some injuries. Mayan Williams had some injuries. The run game wasn't what it was last season. But when you have C.J. Stroud, who's got the hot hand, who threw four touchdowns and no interceptions, you got to keep pushing the ball. And I think play calling's a lot of that. Like, yes, these guys are young and they're going to make some mistakes. But as the head coach, as the offensive coordinator, as the defensive coordinator, you need to call better plays for these guys. And I think that's kind of where Ohio State lost that game. It wasn't for lack of talent. In the one game that Ohio State fans care about, and it's not the national championship, it's uh, <laughs> the game against Michigan, next year will they be looking across the sidelines and seeing catch keys? Will Jim Harbaugh still be in college football next year? I think so. He says he will. I have to hand it to Jim Harbaugh. I've never been a Jim Harbaugh lover because I'm a Seattle Seahawks fan and he coached the 49ers, and I'm an Ohio State fan and he coached Michigan. So Jim Harbaugh's never been that guy, but I will respect him, absolutely. He took a pay cut at one point at Michigan. You know, he literally lost his first ever game at Michigan to Utah. I will never forget these stats because it means everything to me to be a Michigan hater. Lost his first game against Utah, lost five consecutive games against Ohio State. He's lost six consecutive bowl games, which, depending on what bowl game you're in, doesn't matter, quote-unquote. I think they do because you're still kind of playing for pride. But at the end of the day, Jim Harbaugh took a program that – was constantly losing to Ohio State. Some years they weren't even a 10-win program, and he's really turned it around, and he said, if you want to, you know, go to the NFL, you can do that at Michigan. You look last year, Aiden Hutchinson, David Ajabo, those are amazing defensive players. Aiden Hutchinson went second overall from Michigan, and he kind of, you know, wanted to play because he knows that beating Ohio State is everything, and he finally got them to that point, and now it's like the Big Ten used to run through Columbus. No question about it. Now it's like, is the Big Ten running through Ann Arbor? Is that kind of... Same thing when we look at Alabama and Georgia. 
you see with Michigan, these coaches, they wait it out. They don't kind of want to just run away. And the programs believe in them, too, because they understand that, especially with a program like Ohio State when Urban Meyer was there. You're going undefeated. They had three Big Ten titles in a row. You either have to stay and grind it out, and you know that it'll come to fruition eventually, or if you leave and go, then kind of what is your credibility? So I do have to hand it to Harbaugh, and I think he wants to stay, especially not getting the job done two years in a row. I have to say that this year was a lot better semifinal than last year. Last year's semifinals were incredibly boring. Both Cincinnati and Michigan put up 17 points together. So for him to be a touchdown away from going to the national championship, I think he still wants to do that and get that done because he knows the program is on the cusp of that. Biggest difference for me between NFL football culturally and college football is who sets the temperature in the room. In the NFL, starting quarterbacks, and really the star quarterbacks. College football, it's the head coaches. They're the true stars. And now we have a new star at a, I guess I have to say, Power 5 school, but they've been nothing but powerful, and that's Coach Prime going to Colorado. I'm fascinated on your take him going there and what they might be able to do quickly via the traditional recruiting channels, but also the transfer portal. I like the move. I do. I think the Pac-12 plays really fun football. I hate that USC employs Alex Grinch because he's not a very good defensive coordinator because they should have easily run the Pac-12, won out, been in the championship, but their defense you know, failed them every single game. I really love the way that the Pac-12 like, plays football, and I think that Deion Sanders is going to do a really good job there. It's not really hard when you're going from a program that wins two games, but also I kind of like his tough love mentality of, you know, if you if you don't like how I do things, hit the transfer portal. Because honestly, there are a few players who I think, you know, they go to a program like that and they're not taking it super seriously because it's a losing culture and whatever. And again... The Pac-12 is a, a conference that runs through USC, Oregon. UCLA's had some good years. But for the most part, Washington's had some good years too. For the most part, it runs through two, three teams. And he wants to make it that you're coming to Colorado and it's going to be competitive. It's not the Colorado where, you know, you're just practicing and playing games on the weekend for fun. And, you know, that's how it is. It's going to be a winning culture. And that's why I think more conferences should be. I always say I don't love the way the ACC plays football because – there's two, three teams that are really good, runs through Clemson, the rest of the teams. It's like Miami's another school that's supposed to be good all the time, and they never are. But I would love to see Colorado turn into a winning program through him, and I like the way that he's done things so far. It's really hard to say, obviously, when we haven't seen him put a team on the field and go win. He might win two games all season also. You describing it as being tough love, the way he introduced himself to Colorado, is, <laughs> is very generous. <laughs> Because you said if you don't like the way I do things, you could transfer. He said he's bringing his luggage with him, and it's Louie. And some (laughs) of you need to clear out so there's room to bring some players in. And then the next day at his opening presser, he said, that's my son. That's the starting quarterback (laughs) before even meeting any other quarterbacks on the depth chart. Where's where's Shador? Shador? And this is your quarterback, right? He's going to have to earn it. Don't believe that. He's, he's going to have to earn it. From strictly entertainment value, uh, I love it, but I, I can't imagine the new guy is in town and he's essentially you know, kicking you out uh, before he meets you. But whether it's Dion's move, the transfer portal, what I do love is it is abundantly clear that college football is about one thing, and that's money. There's none of this romance for the love of the game, for the pride of the school, for the uplifting of the community, for the education of the students. It's about money. Full stop. And now people are just no longer pretending that it isn't. Oh, two California schools are going to fly a bunch of their athletes to the Midwest to play sports only because it makes sense to get to a different TV contract for, you know, 200 football players, uh, it's, it's about money. We've known that for a long time. There are field hockey players you know, taking connecting flights all over the place because uh, their AD made a choice on what made sense 
for generally football and then sometimes men's basketball. Expansion of the playoffs is about money. Absolutely. It's about more games in prime time and making those rights a little bit more lucrative. But when we were just voting on who won the national championship, I was like, this is ridiculous. Oh, There's yeah. a better way to do this. But now, although people had issues with the BCS and the, the different formulas that we use throughout the years, now I'm, maybe I'm old, but I'm thinking this is a little bit, too far, too fast, too soon. The beauty of college football was that the playoffs started in the regular season. If you trip up against a strong team or not, that can mean something different. Well, now, I don't know if that's true. Do, do you like the expansion of the playoff system? I did like the four-team playoff at first because, again, there were some times where the thing about college football, yes, yeah, sometimes you're playing non-conference Ohio State-Oregon games or you know, Bama, Clemson, but rarely. Those don't happen every single year. So the formula that you're using of, well, is a undefeated Ohio State team stronger than an undefeated Alabama team? That was kind of hard to gauge. So I did like that they said, okay, we're going to make it a little bit of a playoff. But now, especially with 12 teams, sure, you're going to have all the Power 5 conference champions, fair. Then are you going to put in Group of 5 champions or are you going to put in an 11-1 LSU over... An 11-1 Cincinnati. Well, of course you are. And I think that's kind of where it gets a little bit fuzzy with all of this. And like you said, too, there's so much movement happening. Texas and Oklahoma moving to the SEC. USC and UCLA may be moving to the Big Ten. I know now there's something that one of the teams might stay and then Oregon might move. I don't know what's going on. I hate that move because I think that, you know, USC is going to be in for a shock when they have to go play in Nebraska in November. But that's not my choice. But I do think it's a little much now, especially going from 4 to 12. They could have maybe tried to move with 8 and then have buys for the first, you know, or whatever. But I think it is now you've got the same argument that you had this year. This year was, was Ohio State the best number 4 seed? And I think they proved that they were. But also there were Alabama fans arguing, well, they got blown out at home by their rival we lost two really, really close games, which obviously two losses is greater than one, so it was very easy for me that Ohio State was going to be that team. But now you're going to have those same arguments because, well, now if you're putting 12 teams in and you've got all the Power 5 winners, well, now you've got seven other spots you've got to fill. So who are you filling those with? And I think it's just going to create a little bit more chaos in that sense because, again, are you going to keep valuing Power 5 teams over a group of five teams? You saw last year they put Cincinnati in. Cincinnati was very deserving they put up six points. Are you going to do that again? Or a team like Notre Dame, they're independent. You look at Notre Dame's track record in the playoff, it's not very good. Are you going to keep putting a Notre Dame team in there if they're going to keep getting blown out? I think there's still so many what-ifs with it that I don't know that I'm in love with the idea. I do like that they expanded from the BCS because, again, it was just kind of one-two, you go, you play, and it's it was definitely much harder than it is now because now you can lose in September and be a little bit more comfortable, whereas before, if you lost one game, there was no chance you're going to the BCS. So I do like that they expanded, but I don't know that I love the 12-team expansion. I did love the debates about uh, who the computers liked <laughs> when we had the BCS. I thought two was too harsh from this perspective as a competitor. That I didn't like whether it was... Boise State or UCF or TCU, the fact that someone could go undefeated and you're like, yeah, but that's not really undefeated. Essentially what you're telling those teams is at the beginning of the year, no matter what you did, you had no chance to win a national championship. Yeah. And so essentially all of your games were exhibition. So expanding it a little bit to four, getting some room for those teams, I appreciate. What I worry about is you know, if we're squinting and arguing about four versus five versus six, that's fine. Because the goal is to get to one. The whole exercise is who is the best team. We're arguing about seven, eight, nine, ten, and eleven, twelve, thirteen. Like at that point, like who cares? Because you haven't demonstrated over the course of three months that you're close to one. So yeah, you could go on a run, and maybe if you had a star quarterback who's injured, who's now healthy so on and so forth, then that might change. But that attrition is part of the task, part of the job requirement of being a national championship. So I suppose the one benefit is 
there's going to be a bunch of watered-down bowl games anyways. Might as well make them mean something Yeah. because I do not care about the Tax Slayer <laughs> bowl other than when I've got some money on it. Yeah. But I, I, I do think that it's going to take away some of the magic of uh, the regular season. Oh, I 100% agree with you. And I think back to that UCF team in, what was it, 2017, 2018 that went undefeated and they, like, got a banner made because they were like, we we should have been there. And I think it does give opportunity to teams like that. But in the same breath, same thing. If you're going to have a number 12 seed, are they really going to go that far? Probably not. There's probably a reason that they had two losses during the regular season. Of course, yeah, you've got a team like Bama who would have made an expanded playoff this season. Would they have won it? Maybe. Never forget when they came in as a four seed and won the whole thing, when Ohio State came in as a four seed and won the whole thing. Those are kind of the magical stories we like, but I doubt that we're ever going to really see a number 12 seed go and win the whole playoff. Lastly, before I let you go, who do we see win it? I think Georgia. I really think Georgia goes back-to-back. I think... This is when Stetson Bennett finally rides off into the sunset. I think the quarterback battle we saw between him and C.J. Stroud was wonderful. That was one of the most fun semifinals we've had since the inception of the playoff. I think they get it done, but I think it's going to be a close game. I don't think it's going to be a blowout. We really haven't seen a very close game in the national title game in a really long time, and I think it's going to be super close, but I think they just have a little bit of that edge. And again, I really love Kirby Smart as a head coach. I think he's incredible, and I think he knows what it takes to win it again. Stetson Bennett, shoot your shot, kid. (laughs) I have a rule that I will not, as a grown-ass man, wear a jersey of anyone who's younger than me, which essentially means I'm only wearing Tom Brady jerseys (laughs) at this point in life. But I might have to make an exception and rock a Stetson Bennett jersey if they win it. Uh, Thank you for this. Thank you so much. Thank you, Haley. Give her a follow at Goldie on sports on Twitter. I have no idea after listening to her, who I want to win. You've got a literal Rudy in Stetson Bennett, but then you've got the program, the little giants, if you will, in TCU. Either way, it's going to be a fascinating contest. How did these two teams get here? How did Stetson Bennett specifically get here, and what's next for him and his program? We'll talk to Adam Rittenberg about those things and more next on Going Deep. My name is Lucille Bryan. I'm Clifton Bryan. My grandson is a show. And I'm so happy that you are listening to Going Deep with Donovan Bennett. I'm so glad that he had the show. Thank you. Thank you, Grandma and Granddad. We're back after break on Going Deep. And you heard earlier in the show, Stetson Bennett's nickname, The Mailman, that was given to him by a high school coach, he was so accurate with the football, he said he could literally put it in a mailbox. But now that nickname takes on different meaning because he potentially could deliver Georgia their second title. After having a long drought, now are they the new dynasty in college football? Especially when you consider Alabama only has one title in the last five years. To break down everything that's going on in the college football landscape, Let's catch up with Adam Rittenberg, senior college football writer for ESPN, host of college sports on Sirius XM, and adjunct professor at DePaul. He's going to take us to class on the NCAA championship game. Let's listen to and learn from Adam Rittenberg. Adam, Georgia almost a two-score favorite in this game, but historically in big championship games the massive favorites haven't fared well do you see tcu as a massive underdog the way vegas does well yeah i mean i I think they're a team that has defied the expectations all season even in their conference they were picked seventh before the year uh had never been to the college football playoff had come close back in 2014 but is a new coach uh, you're replacing a legend and Gary Patterson Sonny Dykes replacing Gary Patterson um, you know there was just a lot of questions around this team and so yeah, you're, you're facing a defending national champion with a lot of talent on both sides of the ball a quarterback who won the title last year in Stetson Bennett so it, it makes sense why this is such a big point spread but if you watch TCU all season I don't think anyone would really be surprised if they're in the game late and have a chance to win. 
Yeah, TCU, in a way, the Minnesota Vikings of college football, like just hang around, yeah. make comebacks. People are never really convinced, but uh, they keep winning. Speaking of not being convinced, this title for me is fascinating because it's full of a bunch of people that other people didn't really want. And I love the fact that the Big 12 is saying, look at us, TCU, when the Big 12 historically didn't want TCU. And some of the other teams in the conference left TCU, whether it was the Southwest Conference, Western Athletic Conference, Conference USA, Mountain West. Now they're finally on the stage for a school that is a third the size of Georgia. What does this mean for the program and the institution? Well, it's incredible. Um, I was at TCU uh, earlier in the season, and you know it's, it's an interesting place because they have some long-term tradition. You're going back to the to the 30s and and the 40s, but uh, it is a small school. And you think about the difference going there versus going to Athens, Georgia, and seeing the the, the just the the giant of that program. Uh, it, it is incredibly different. But you know, TCU has resources. They've always had money around their program. Um, and, and they were a very competitive program for a long time under Gary Patterson. They won a Rose Bowl and went undefeated back in 2010. Uh, I think that they were a team that if they got into the playoff in 2014 could have actually won a national title. They were that good that year. Um, so they, they, it's not like a complete unknown. But when you compare it to you know, the resources around Georgia, it's, it's, uh, it really is different. And certainly uh, you know, this is huge for TCU I think they have uh, the right guy in Sonny Dykes who's, who fits that um, area so well and has done a nice job of, um, you know, being a little bit better from an external perspective than I think, you know, Gary Patterson was a great coach, but it was a very quiet program. They didn't do a whole lot with the media. You know, their players were kind of unknown. It was, it was a bit of a, you know, bunker mentality around that program. I think it's, it's changed dramatically under Sonny Dykes where, you know, players are getting more attention. And that's important in the era of NIL and, you know, branding and social media that, you know, your story is told. And I think TCU's story has been told in a much, uh, much different way this season. Obviously helps to have the success they're having. Historically in these big games, when you have two conferences matching up, always looked at the SEC and said, man, it's not just about the athleticism. You know, often it's, it's the difference in speed. Even against another power conference when they've faced Big Ten teams. But TCU, for me, as an underdog, is different because they do have that team speed. They actually train uh, team speed three times a week. You know, to the layman who just turns on the, the film and doesn't necessarily know the, the difference in stars and a lot of these recruits, will they notice a physical difference between the two teams? Well, I think they'll notice a physical difference in size, um, especially on along the line of scrimmage. Although TCU's got an excellent offensive line. Uh, you know, Steve Avila was a consensus All-American at guard, and uh, that, that's been a really uh, you know, good group, one of the strengths of the team. I, I think the defensive front, you'll see a difference with Georgia. I mean, there that, there's few groups that – physically resemble what Georgia puts on the, on the field uh, on the defensive line, but you bring up the speed component and that gets really important. That's not an area where TCU is lacking. Their offense is built largely around speed and they have a number of of future NFL players. I mean, I was talking to a coach in the big 12 the other day who said, you know, not only is Quentin Johnston a first round pick at wide receiver, but they have other guys, uh, other receivers and running backs who are going to be drafted. Kendry Miller, has really improved his stock this year. Um, on the defensive side, uh, Hodges Tomlinson, um, uh, who, who's obviously related to Ladanian Tomlinson, the, the great TCU running back, um, you know, he, he, he's going to be a highly drafted guy at cornerback, so and he can run. So, so I, I don't think that, that, that there will be a noticeable difference across the board in speed, but when you combine it with some of the size and power that Georgia has, you know, there's a chance that they can overpower TCU, but we also thought Michigan would overpower TCU, and that certainly wasn't the case in the semifinals. When I look at the, the biggest difference for me at Georgia and looking at the quarterbacks, I look at the difference in age. Stetson Bennett, yeah. uh, a sixth-year uh, player, age 25, same age as Lamar Jackson, uh, who's looking to get to his second contract in the NFL, but 
if you made a movie of Stetson Bennett's story, I don't think many people would believe it. What have you made of his odyssey to from junior college, growing up in the state, wanting to be the starter from when he was three to being in quarterback rooms with Jamie Newman and Jake Fromm and Justin Fields and JT Daniels and, and on and on and on. And then always saying you're not the guy and him just never wanting to leave. Right. It's an amazing story. And I think back to doing some reporting around Stetson back even in 2020, um, but, but even also in 2021. And it, it just shows that when coaches are evaluating quarterbacks, it's very hard for them to get away from the measurables. And that's where Stetson always, you know, no pun intended, came up short. I mean, he, he did not pop as a physically dominant quarterback. But I remember talking with Rhett Lashley, who's the coach at SMU now. He was the offensive coordinator at Auburn when Stetson came to their camp there. And he was just saying how he, he loved the guy. I mean, coaches loved this guy when he came to their camp. They just couldn't bring themselves to say, okay, we're going to make you our QB1. We're going to, at least on the college level, say you're going to be our, our franchise guy. Because, you know, he's 5'10". He's, he's a small guy. He's not 6'3". He doesn't have that, you know, the strongest arm in the world. But I think coaches realized early on that he had some uh, you know, gifts that in the right situation could be brought out. Now, who, who would have thought it would come out at Georgia with a chance to win the second national title and being a Heisman finalist and, and so forth. But you know, I, I think coaches were struggling when Stetson was around them earlier because they really liked him. They, they, there are a lot of things that they saw in his game that had this potential, but you couldn't bring the, it couldn't bring themselves to say, okay, I'm just going to go all in with a, a 5'10", you know, somewhat strong-armed quarterback. Well, coaches like him, but his current coach, Kirby Smart, I can't count the amount of times, whether it was a halftime interview or a post-game interview, where I've heard Kirby Smart say that his quarterback has to play better, and he's given him a national championship. And even last year, going into the national championship game, and at halftime of the championship game, the conversation amongst Georgia fans on Twitter was, we need to play somebody else. What has that, suppose resilient ascension been like where even after winning and having to parade people in Athens were like, all right, thank you, Stetson Bennett, the fourth, like, you can go on and do something else. We, we need to get better at the position. Yeah. Well, I, I think it's you know, part of it's just any quarterback who struggles, you, you, your fans are going to want to move on to the next guy. But I think especially when you, you know, came into school as a walk on and were not projected to do any of the things that you're doing, um, that that you know reflex is maybe even stronger from a from a fan base or media or whoever to let, let, let's go on let's move on to the next person and you know Kirby Smart you're right has been hard on Stetson at times but also has been his greatest defender uh, in the midst of some of that criticism or calls for replacement and um, you know he stuck with him this entire journey and look at where they are and so um, you know I think I think again part of that's just uh, the, the nature of the sport right now uh, and uh, you know, almost any quarterback who, who maybe isn't playing at a, a Heisman caliber level week to week is going to face some degree of criticism, but it's also almost easier to say, well, you know, how, can we really expect this guy to keep this up? Let, let, let's find somebody who was higher recruited. Let's find somebody who was taller. Let's find somebody who had a stronger arm and give them a shot. So allow me to go there and assume they do go back-to-back. For me, he immediately is more popular in the state of Georgia than Herschel Walker. He has to be considered, you know, the the greatest dog player of all time. But am I a prisoner of the moment? Because it's not as if if Justin Fields doesn't transfer, Georgia doesn't doesn't have all the same success. There is literally, um, you know, a pre-made meal here for, for anyone with that defense and with that offensive talent. How do you rate his legacy if they're able to get this done? Well, I, I think he's going to be looked at as one of the greatest winners in college football history, one of the great stories. I still think that in Georgia, people will look at the most talented players in a different light. You know, I, I think Herschel Walker will still be seen as a, as a more memorable Bulldog player than Stetson Bennett. 
Um, you know, and, and again, you mentioned the first title. You know, so much of that is going to be because of, or be remembered because of the defense and the cast they had on that side of the ball. Uh, and so I, I'm curious how Stetson Bennett's legacy will be in 10 years and 15 years and 20 years because Georgia's had a lot of good quarterbacks who have come through that program who didn't win national titles. You know, Aaron Murray and, and obviously Matt, Matthew Stafford, who, you know, are seen as more talented players in Stetson Bennett. So he's going to have a very interesting legacy, but you know, certainly one that he has nothing to apologize for if he's able to win a second straight national title uh, at, at a place that, you know, again, I, I, I had looked at as, as a massive underachiever. I mean, I, I don't necessarily agree with you that Justin Fields would have won a national title. There was a lot of evidence, decades of evidence, of Georgia having more talented players uh, than their opponents and not winning national titles. So maybe this is the way it had to go. Maybe it had to go with Stetson Bennett, a true underdog, uh, being able to uh, help this offense and help this team to uh, finally end that national title drought. And now they're in a position to win another one. It's a good point by you. You Georgia alums, Ryan Seacrest, Stetson Bennett. Those are the top two uh, for me if they're able (laughs) Uh, to get it done. Let's go uh, big picture on the bowl season, which in recent memory for me has been the best bowl season uh, I I can remember in a long time. There's so much talk and college football talk is all about like the crisis that is around the corner. Uh, Transfer portals, terrible players are opting out. NIL is ruining the sport. Expanded playoffs is going to water it down. And I do agree with that. But but we still found ourselves with a really compelling uh, bowl season. Give me your prognosis on the health of the sport at this moment. Well, I, you know, it depends on who you talk to. Um, I think a lot of those things that you mentioned are still concerns, especially for coaches who are used to a certain way the college football went. Um, I, I do think the fact that, uh, you know, there's so much money being thrown around, um, you know, almost undeservedly for you know, players who haven't done anything at the college level. I think it's, a, it, it's not exactly a, uh, a sustainable model for the future. And so I'm curious how the sport looks with, you know, a few years of NIL and a few years of the transfer portal and, and maybe some type of uh, regulation around, um, you know, how, how money can be spent. Uh, for NIL. Um, I don't know if that's going to be possible, but I I still feel like there's still a feeling of chaos in the sport, even though, like you mentioned, the Bulls were, uh, it it was a fun bowl season and a fun playoff so far. And, and, and the popularity of the sport continues to go up, but um, there is a feeling that it's still out of control, at least among the coaches I talked to. Well, and lastly, before I let you go, we are seeing maybe a line of demarcation in the sport and, you know, one coach that has been a disruptor is Coach Prime, Deion Sanders. And I wonder for you if he is an outlier or will be a vanguard and we'll see more coaches uh, ascend the way that he has and essentially use some of the things that we've talked about um, as leverage and not seeing them as ills. What, what do you make of the phenomenon that is Coach Prime and what he might be able to do at Colorado? Well, I think it's clear that you know, Deion Sanders is a coach for this time. Um, I, I don't think he's nearly as effective, at least from a personnel standpoint, you know, pre-transfer portal, pre-NIL. Um, and, and so you know, he, he's, he's able, because of those factors and who he is and, and how, he, uh, how he approaches this job and, 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 and creates a philosophy for his program, that you can you know, flip a roster. You can uh, you know, change a, a program's uh, trajectory very very quickly um, you know I, I don't know if there's going to be necessarily more coaches that are exactly like Deion Sanders because he's a distinct personality his background as an athlete you know there's there, there, there's few athletes, just better overall athletes in the sport that are coaching um, may, maybe ever uh, if you just I, mean, I was talking with a personnel director in the Pac-12 uh, earlier this week and I was like, you know, none of these kids saw him as an athlete. And this, this person said, yeah, that's a good thing. Like, it would be even harder to prevent or, or to stop them from collecting talent if these, if these players had actually seen how great of an athlete Dion was. So he, he, he's, a, he's kind of a one-of-one one type person overall. But I do think there's going to be more coaches that take tidbits of his approach and maybe his directness about the portal, about NIL, 
about roster management and try to apply those, especially if he is indeed successful at Colorado. I mean, the thing to remember, you know, turning Jackson State into a, a good team, you know, when you have more talent than everybody else is one thing. Uh, now you're in the Pac-12, you're, you're upgrading the talent level at Colorado, but, you know, there's some really good programs and a lot of talent in that league. So actually winning is going to be the thing that ultimately uh, determines, you know, whether the Dion approach is going to you know, truly work or just somewhat work. Well, those kids do have YouTube, but it might be tough for them <laughs> to reconcile the guy who is limping around uh, you know, now is the same guy who was you know, two-stepping in the end zone and putting the ball in the air and putting his hand behind his head. I'm fascinated to see where it goes selfishly. I was sad to see him leave Jackson State, but it was somewhat inevitable. What is inevitable is we'll continue to, to cover your uh, coverage of not just what happens with Coach Prime in Colorado, but all of the big issues in the sport. Thank you so much for breaking it down with us. You bet. Thanks for having me on. Appreciate it. Thanks to Adam. You can follow him on Twitter at ESPN Rindenberg. You can follow us as well. I'm at Donovan Bennett. Two N's in my first name. I'm going to be following this college football action and I'm going to be watching without really a dog in the fight just as a fan not caring who wins until I get in my feelings get emotional about what I'm seeing on the field. No idea what we'll talk about next week. We'll see where the sports landscape takes us. Hopefully more positive news for DeMar Hamlin. So keep him in prayers and keep connected with us. Let us know who you want to hear from, what you want to hear about. And while you're on your phones, listen, favorite, share, and subscribe. Thanks for listening.